Chapter Twenty Four, Part Two of Two of Herndon's Lincoln. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Don Bracci. Herndon's Lincoln by William H. Herndon and Jesse William Wake. Section Twenty Four. History furnishes few characters whose lives and careers were so nearly parallel as those of Lincoln and Douglas. They met for the first time at the legislature in Vandalia in 1834, where Lincoln was a member of the House of Representatives, and Douglas was in the lobby. The next year Douglas was also a member. In 1839 both were admitted to practice in the Supreme Court of Illinois on the same day. In 1841 both courted the same young lady. In 1846 both represented Illinois in Congress at Washington, the one in the upper and the other in the lower house. In 1858 they were opposing candidates for United States Senator, and finally, to complete the remarkable counterpart, both were candidates for the presidency in 1860. While it is true that their ambitions ran in parallel lines, yet they were exceedingly unlike in all other particulars. Douglas was short, something over five feet high, heavy set with a large head, broad shoulders, deep chest, and striking features. He was polite and affable, but fearless. He had that unique trait, magnetism, fully developed in his nature, and that attracted a host of friends and readily made him a popular idol. He had had extensive experience in debate, and had been trained by contact for years with the great minds and orators in Congress. He was full of political history, well informed on general topics, eloquent almost to the point of brilliancy, self-confident to the point of arrogance and a dangerous competitor in every respect. What he lacked in ingenuity he made up in strategy, and if in debate he could not tear down the structure of his opponent's argument by a direct and violent attack, he was by no means reluctant to resort to a strained restatement of the latter's position, or to the extravagance of ridicule. Lincoln knew this man thoroughly and well. He had often met Douglas on the stump, was familiar with his tactics, and though fully aware of his want of fixed political morals, was not averse to measuring swords with the elastic and flexible little giant. Lincoln himself was constructed of an entirely different foundation. His base was plain common sense, direct statement, and the inflexibility of logic. In physical makeup, he was cold, at least not magnetic, and made no effort to dazzle people by his bearing. He cared nothing for a following, and though he had often before struggled for a political prize, yet in his efforts he never had strained his well-known spirit of fairness or open love of the truth. He analyzed everything, laid every statement bare, and by dint of his broad reasoning powers and manliness of admission, inspired his hearers with deep conviction of his earnestness and honesty. Douglas may have electrified the crowds with his eloquence or charmed them with his majestic bearing and dexterity in debate, but as each man, after the meetings were over and the applause had died away, went to his home, his head rang with Lincoln's logic and appeal to manhood. A brief description of Mr. Lincoln's appearance on the stump and of his manner when speaking may not be without interest. When standing erect he was six feet four inches high. He was lean in flesh and ungainly in figure. Aside from the sad, pained look due to habitual melancholy, his face had no characteristic or fixed expression. 
he was thin through his chest and hence slightly stoop-shouldered when he arose to address courts juries or crowds of people his body inclined forward to a slight degree at first he was very awkward and it seemed a real labor to adjust himself to his surroundings he struggled for a time under a feeling of apparent diffidence and sensitiveness and these only added to his awkwardness i have often seen and sympathized with mr lincoln during these moments when he began speaking his voice was shrill piping and unpleasant his manner his attitude his dark yellow face wrinkled and dry his oddity of pose his diffident movements everything seemed to be against him but only for a short time after having arisen he generally placed his hands behind him the back of his left hand in the palm of his right the thumb and fingers of his right hand clasped around the left arm at the wrist for a few moments he played the combination of awkwardness sensitiveness and diffidence as he proceeded he became somewhat animated and to keep in harmony with his growing warmth his hands relaxed their grasp and fell to his side presently he clasped them in front of him interlocking his fingers one thumb meanwhile chasing another his speech now requiring more emphatic utterance his fingers unlocked and his hands fell apart his left arm was thrown behind the back of his hand resting against his body his right hand seeking his side by this time he had gained sufficient composure and his real speech began he did not gesticulate as much with his hands as with his head he used the latter frequently throwing it with vim this way and that this movement was a significant one when he sought to enforce his statement it sometimes came with a quick jerk as if throwing off electric sparks into combustible material he never sawed the air nor rent space into tatters and rags as some orators do he never acted for stage effect he was cool considerate reflective in time self-possessed and self-reliant his style was clear terse and compact in argument he was logical demonstrative and fair he was careless of his dress and his clothes instead of fitting neatly as did the garments of douglas on the latter's well-rounded form hung loosely on his giant frame. As he moved along in his speech he became freer and less uneasy in his movements. To that extent he was graceful. He had a perfect naturalness, a strong individuality, and to that extent he was dignified. He despised glitter, show, set forms, and shams. He spoke with effectiveness and to move the judgment as well as the emotions of men. There was a world of meaning and emphasis in the long bony finger of his right hand as he dotted the ideas on the minds of his hearers sometimes to express joy or pleasure he would raise both hands at an angle of about fifty degrees the palms upwards as if desirous of embracing the spirit of that which he loved if the sentiment was one of detestation denunciation of slavery for example both arms thrown upward and fists clenched swept through the air and he expressed an execration that was truly sublime this was one of his most effective gestures and signified most vividly a fixed determination to drag down the object of his hatred and trample it in the dust he always stood squarely on his feet toe even with toe that is he never put one foot before the other he neither touched nor leaned on anything for support he made but few changes in his positions and attitudes he never ranted, never walked backward and forward on the platform. To ease his arms, he frequently caught hold with his left hand of the lapel of his coat. Q. 
keeping his thumb upright and leaving his right hand free to gesticulate. The designer of the monument recently erected in Chicago has happily caught him in just this attitude. As he proceeded with his speech, the exercise of his vocal organs altered somewhat the tone of his voice. It lost in a measure its former acute and shrilling pitch, and mellowed into a more harmonious and pleasant sound. His form expanded, and notwithstanding the sunken breast, he rose up a splendid and imposing figure. In his defense of the Declaration of Independence, his greatest inspiration, he was tremendous in the directness of his utterances. He rose to impassioned eloquence, unsurpassed by Patrick Henry, Mirabeau, Verniat, as his soul was inspired with the thought of human right and divine justice. His little gray eyes flashed in a face aglow with the fire of his profound thoughts, and his uneasy movements and diffident manner sunk themselves beneath the wave of righteous indignation that came sweeping over him. Such was Lincoln the orator. We can somewhat appreciate the feeling with which Douglas, aggressive and fearless, though he was, welcomed a contest with such a man as Lincoln. Four years before, in a joint debate with him, he had asked for a cessation of forensic hostilities, conceding that his opponent of rail-splitting fame had given him more trouble than all the United States Senate together. Now he was brought face to face with him again. It is unnecessary, and not in keeping with the purpose of this work, to reproduce here the speeches made by either Lincoln or Douglas in their justly renowned debate. Briefly stated, Lincoln's position was announced in his opening speech at Springfield. A house divided against itself cannot stand. I believe this government cannot endure permanently half-slave and half-free. I do not expect the Union to be dissolved. I do not expect the house to fall. But I do expect it will cease to be divided. It will become all the one thing or the other. Either the opponents of slavery will arrest the further spread of it and place it where the public mind shall rest in the belief that it is in the course of ultimate extinction, or its advocates will push it forward till it becomes alike lawful in all the states, old as well as new, north as well as south. The position of Douglas on the question of slavery was one of indifference. He advocated with all his power the doctrine of popular sovereignty, a proposition as quaintly put by Lincoln, which meant that, if one man chooses to enslave another, no third man has a right to object. At the last joint discussion in Alton, Lincoln, after reflecting on the patriotism of any man who was so indifferent to the wrong of slavery that he cared not whether it was voted up or down, closed his speech with this stirring summary. That slavery is the real issue. That is the issue that will continue in this country when these poor tongues of Judge Douglas and myself shall be silent. It is the eternal struggle between these two principles, right and wrong, throughout the world. They are the two principles that have stood face to face from the beginning of time, and will ever continue to struggle. The one is the common right of humanity, and the other the divine right of kings. It is the same principle, in whatever shape it develops itself. It is the same spirit that says, You work and toil and earn bread, and I eat it. No matter in what shape it comes, whether from the mouth of a king who seeks to bestride the people of his own nation and live by the fruit of their labor, or from one race of men as an apology for enslaving another race, it is the same tyrannical principle. 
It is unnecessary, I presume, to insert here the seven questions which Douglas propounded to Lincoln at their first meeting at Ottawa, nor the historic four which Lincoln asked at Freeport. It only remains to say that in answering Lincoln at Freeport, Douglas accomplished his own political downfall. He was swept entirely away from his former foundation, and even the glory of a subsequent election to the Senate never restored him to it. During the canvass, Mr. Lincoln, in addition to the seven meetings with Douglas, filled 31 appointments made by the State Central Committee, besides speaking at many other times and places not previously advertised. In his trips to and fro over the state, between meetings, he would stop at Springfield sometimes to consult with his friends or to post himself up on questions that occurred during the canvass. He kept me busy hunting up old speeches and gathering facts and statistics at the state library. I made liberal clippings bearing in any way on the questions of the hour from every newspaper I happened to see, and kept him supplied with them. And on one or two occasions, in answer to letters and telegrams, I sent books forward to him. He had a little leather-bound book, fastened in front with a clasp, in which he and I both kept inserting newspaper slips and newspaper comments until the canvas opened. In arranging for the joint meetings and managing the crowds, Douglas enjoyed one great advantage. He had been United States Senator for several years, and had influential friends holding comfortable government offices all over the state. These men were on hand at every meeting, losing no opportunity to applaud lustily all the points Douglas made, and to lionize him in every conceivable way. The ingeniously contrived display of their enthusiasm had a marked effect on certain crowds, a fact of which Lincoln frequently complained to his friends. One who accompanied him during the canvass relates this. Lincoln and I were at the Centralia Agricultural Fair the day after the debate at Jonesboro. Night came on and we were tired, having been on the fairgrounds all day. We were to go north on the Illinois Central Railroad. The train was due at midnight, and the depot was full of people. I managed to get a chair for Lincoln in the office of the superintendent of the railroad, but small politicians would intrude so that he could scarcely get a moment's sleep. The train came and was filled instantly. I got a seat near the door for Lincoln and myself. He was worn out and had to meet Douglas the next day at Charleston. An empty car, called a saloon car, was hitched onto the rear of the train and locked up. I asked the conductor, who knew Lincoln and myself well, we were both attorneys of the road, if Lincoln could not ride in that car, that he was exhausted and needed rest, but the conductor refused. I afterwards got him in by a stratagem. At the same time, George B. McClellan, in person, was taking Douglas around in a special car and a special train, and that was the unjust treatment Lincoln got from the Illinois Central Railroad. Every interest of that road and every employee was against Lincoln and for Douglas. The heat and dust and bonfires of the campaign at last came to an end. The election took place on the 2nd of November, and while Lincoln received of the popular vote a majority of over 4,000, yet the returns from the legislative districts foreshadowed his defeat. In fact, when the senatorial election took place in the legislature, Douglas received 54 and Lincoln 46 votes. One of the results of the lamentable apportionment law, then in operation. The letters of Lincoln at this period are the best evidence of his feelings now obtainable, and of how he accepted his defeat. 
to henry asbury a friend who had written him a cheerful letter admonishing him not to give up the battle he responded mr henry asbury my dear sir yours of the thirteenth was received some days ago the fight must go on the cause of civil liberty must not be surrendered at the end of one or even one hundred defeats douglas had the ingenuity to be supported in the late contest both as the best means to break down and to uphold the slave interest no ingenuity can keep these antagonistic elements in harmony long another explosion will come soon yours truly a lincoln to another friend on the same day he writes i am glad i made the late race it gave me a hearing on the great and durable questions of the age which i could have had in no other way and though i now sink out of view and shall be forgotten i believe i have made some marks which will tell for the cause of liberty long after i am gone before passing to later events in lincoln's life it is proper to include in this chapter as a specimen of his oratory at this time his eloquent reference to the declaration of independence found in a speech delivered at beardstown august twelfth and not at lewiston five days later as many biographers have it aside from its concise reasoning the sublime thought it suggests entitles it to rank beside the great masterpiece his gettysburg address after alluding to the suppression by the fathers of the republic of the slave trade he says these by their representatives in old independence hall said to the whole race of men we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights that among these are life liberty and the pursuit of happiness this was their majestic interpretation of the economy of the universe this was their lofty and wise and noble understanding of the justice of the creator to his creatures yes gentlemen to all his creatures to the whole great family of man in their enlightened belief nothing stamped with the divine image and likeness was sent into the world to be trodden on and degraded and imbruted by its fellows they grasped not only the whole race of man then living but they reached forward and seized upon the farthest posterity they erected a beacon to guide their children and their children's children and the countless myriads who should inhabit the earth in other ages wise statesmen as they were they knew the tendency of prosperity to breed tyrants and so they established these great self-evident truths that when in the distant future some man some faction some interest should set up the doctrine that none but rich man none but white man or none but anglo-saxon white men were entitled to life liberty in the pursuit of happiness their posterity might look up again to the declaration of independence and take courage to renew the battle which their fathers began so that truth and justice and mercy and all the humane and christian virtues might not be extinguished from the land so that no man would hereafter dare to limit and circumscribe the great principles on which the temple of liberty was being built now my countrymen if you have been taught doctrines conflicting with the great landmarks of the declaration of independence if you have listened to suggestions which would take away from its grandeur and mutilate the fair symmetry of its proportions 
if you have been inclined to believe that all men are not created equal in those inalienable rights enumerated by our chart of liberty let me entreat you to come back return to the fountain whose waters spring close by the blood of the revolution think nothing of me take no thought for the political fate of any man whomsoever but come back to the truths that are in the declaration of independence you may do anything with me you choose if you will but heed these sacred principles you may not only defeat me for the senate but you may take me and put me to death while pretending no indifference to earthly honors i do claim to be actuated in this contest by something higher than an anxiety for office i charge you to drop every paltry and insignificant thought for any man's success it is nothing i am nothing judge douglas is nothing but do not destroy that immortal emblem of humanity the declaration of american independence one of the newspaper men who heard this majestic oration wrote me as follows the apostrophe to the declaration of independence to which you refer was written by myself from a vivid recollection of mr lincoln's speech at beardstown august twelfth eighteen fifty eight on the day following the delivery of the speech as mr lincoln and i were proceeding by steamer from beardstown to hyana i said to him that i had been greatly impressed by his concluding remarks of the day previous and that if he would write them out for me i felt confident their publication would be highly beneficial to our cause as well as honorable to his own fame he replied that he had but a faint recollection of any portion of that speech like all his campaign speeches it was necessarily extemporaneous and that its good or bad effect depended upon the inspiration of the moment he added that i had probably overestimated the value of the remarks referred to in reply to my question whether he had any objection to my writing them out from memory and putting them in the form of a verbatim report he said none at all i accordingly did so i felt confident then and i feel equally assured now that i transcribed the peroration with absolute fidelity as to the ideas and commendable fidelity as to the language i certainly aimed to reproduce his exact words and my recollection of the passage as spoken was very clear after i had finished writing i read it to mr lincoln when i had finished the reading he said well those are my views and if i said anything on the subject i must have said substantially that but not nearly so well as that is said i remember this remark quite distinctly and if the old steamer editor is still in existence i could show the place where we were sitting having secured his assent to the publication i forwarded it to our paper but inasmuch as my report of the beardstown meeting had been already mailed i incorporated the remarks on the declaration of independence in my letter from lewiston two or three days subsequently i do not remember ever having related these facts before although they have often recurred to me as i have seen this peroration resuscitated again and again and published with good effect i trust in the newspapers of this country and england end of section twenty four recording by don bracci chicago illinois www.voicedon.com